you know, I'm helping the Pakistani Federation find some players with experience because they're going to play in the World Baseball Classic qualifier down in Panama City. And I said, are you telling me just over the phone that you're going to put me on the national team if I agree to, like, get my body <laughs> and my arm in shape? And he's like, can you? <laughs> How can I not now? Yeah. Mom or dad was Pakistani. What about mom? Was she from the States? Or? Uh, yeah, mom's, my mom's from Buffalo, New York. Okay. Um, they, she moved down to Dallas with her sister in, in the 70s. Okay. Like Dust Bowl 70s. There was, there was jobs here. There was no jobs there. So mm -hmm. she came down. And my dad was managing a restaurant. So he, And my mom was a teller at a bank. And so I always tell the story about how my parents met is like my dad would walk into the bank with literally with bags of cash. And of course that gets a female's attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, well, it was his cash too, right? If Some it, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heck yeah, man. And the rest of the sister, how long have they been together? Um, they've been together, I'm 38, so they've been together 42 years now, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. They live in the same house I was brought home, home to in Mesquite, no in Mesquite Texas. Mesquite, Texas, baby. Yep. Yep. That's cool, man. That's how my, my, my grandparents were. I think they built their house. I mean, they're obviously since passed, but they built their house in, I want to say the 50s or 60s. Literally lived in that house till they both passed away. Yeah. Like 50 some odd years. Built it for like $15,000. Yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, crazy difference in economics. You know, my, my dad grew up in the third world, so he's, he's the least materialistic person you'll ever come across. And I remember being like an eight or 10 year old kid. And my dad was like, Hey son, I paid off the house. And even back then I knew that was uncommon. Um, but he, you know, he's had that house paid off for God, at least 25 years. Yeah. And the neighborhood's kind of gone downhill a little bit, but he doesn't care. Um, they're comfortable there and you know, they're 45 minutes from us. So they'd make the drive to see their grandkids. Did they do the grandkid. They, yeah. they watch them quite a bit. Yeah. What about your wife's parents? Are they here local too? Or no? Um, so my wife's mother is here. She's in the colony okay. and her dad is up in Indianapolis where they grew up. So she's got three siblings and we're actually flying up there this weekend with the kids to go to the Indy 500 and no kidding. Yeah. We That's go every cool. year. Yeah. You go every year. Are you big into the, the racing scene? Or? I am now that my family is my, yeah. my father-in-law had been for like 40 straight years until COVID. And we went up, I think it was, they canceled it in 2020. And so excuse me, 2021, um, they did like a lottery for like limited seating and we didn't, we didn't get selected. So we ended up watching it from home, but that those COVID years were the first two he had missed in literally 40 years. Dang, man. So it's a big, big time race fan. Yeah. I had, um, I had uh, Carrie Niblack who was, uh, she's now the president of Blackwell, but a competitive mm -hmm. captive. Um, but she has a racing lineage. Like her aunt, um, was named Roxy. I forgot Roxy's last name. But her aunt was racing cars back in like the 60s or 70s or something like that before her female drivers were common. Um, and she went over and like pursued a, a European career. Apparently, uh, Carrie was saying that Roxy's uh, was walked down the aisle or given away at her wedding by Mario Andretti. Like they were super close. No to, kidding. Yeah. She, somebody gave her an engine at a race and it was some famous racer. I can't remember who it was, but there she's in Indianapolis, I believe as well. Yeah. So like super into that, that world of, of racing. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I've kind of gotten into it over the last couple of years. I have a, I have a friend who's a, a really prominent lawyer who's big into car collection and racing. And, um, he actually bought, um, Michael Schumacher's, I think it was 2001 or 2003, I don't remember which year, but he bought Michael Schumacher's F1 car that won the F1 series that year. 
And I wonder what that thing is worth. Oh, <laughs> he bought, I know the numbers, they're crazy. Yeah. Like, he actually just sold it um, and made like 5X on this car over 12 years. And I mean, there was an article in Car and Driver magazine, and this author clearly had a fanboy crush on this car because he said it was. Um, not just the coolest car that had ever been made. It may be the coolest thing that humans have ever made. <laughs> and so that might be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah maybe. Still, but of course, my awesome. buddy was pounding his chest like, "Look what he's writing about yeah, my car." Well, we, I think everybody's got that buddy that's either a little further in their career, a little more successful, that has the cars, and you're like, Monday. Like that's, I hope. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if that's if that's your motivation. Yeah, no, I, other people have different. Yeah, like I just. I love the beauty of like just a, a well-engineered car, whether it's because it physically looks beautiful or whether because it performs well or both. I just have always had a fascination since a kid. I remember having, you remember those old, uh, you know, what are those book fairs that you'd go to and you get spend 20 bucks on books, but you'd come home with like four posters. Yes. <laughs> yes. I had a, I love the Lamborghini Countach, which was like, I think in the eighties or nineties, I think I had a purple Lamborghini Countach like poster on my wall was saving up in a jar uh with I was, I was <laughs> saving up for Lamborghini at like eight eight years old and then I think I got a hundred bucks in it and was like oh that's how much Lamborghinis cost and then bought G.I. Joe's or something yeah. instead yeah no I knew where you were going with that because we're roughly the same age and I remember having like the yellow Lamborghini the red Ferrari like I had probably four or five of those hanging in my room as well and um I'm not a huge car guy because you, you just tear them up like I'm I'm a little boy at heart, so everything I touch, I tend to break, like like my little kids. <laughs> and so the idea of spending, you know, a quarter of a million dollars on a car just doesn't appeal to me. But you know, who knows? Maybe one day I'll, I'll be there, and I won't care about. Yeah, so yeah. I think there's there's folks that reach a certain echelon of income or wealth where that quarter doesn't million matter. dollars is is nominal, and so it's yeah, it's a little bit different. So ballgame. what would be your car then? It's <sighs> a great question. I've I've I don't. I recently got into liking Porsches, um, like the Porsche 911. Um, there's a really beautiful blue color they have that I've had my eyes on, but those are, you know, even a, just not even a turbo, uh, just a regular 911. Is it like a, that sky blue color? It's, yeah, it's yeah, sky I blue know what you're color. Talking about. There's the, and there's the GT3 that, those are like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Those are, those are I know what that amazing. is, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's a little bit down the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, before we go on further, let's go ahead and introduce you, man, because we probably might use some of that great conversation, but I'm, I'm here with Omar Arif, who is, what, you said SVP of growth did i uh that's correct yeah uh for claim doc the wonderful uh claim doc reference-based pricing uh vendor do you call yourselves a vendor or what do you guys call yourselves a yeah i mean manager or? yeah I, I call us a a network replacement solution okay a cost containment vendor i mean you could ask me 10 times what we are and i'd give you eight different answers but okay yeah rbp is our, our flagship product yeah i was gonna say well so we use the kind of the common nomenclature until we yeah. dig into it a little bit further but that's of course going to be the the bulk of the conversation today i did feature claim doc about two years ago now um but this isn't really a realm within the ecosystem of self-funding that i've dug into enough and i felt it was time to, to address this subject again and um really appreciate you coming on man i want to before we get into all the, the the stuff about academic learning of RBP. Uh, let's learn a little bit about you, man. So Omar, why don't you tell us your backstory a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm local. I'm uh, 38 years old. I grew up in Mesquite, Texas. Um, I've got a wife and two kids. We live in Highland Village now. So we moved from the east side to the north side. Um, I spent most of my college career at TCU. So I know Fort Worth as well. Um, Baseball player, right? That's correct. Yeah, baseball player um, my whole life. Well, every sport under the sun until about middle school and then um, 
basketball, football until ninth grade, and then straight baseball through through college and a short stint in the minor leagues. Yeah. Yeah, and you told me you were, we were having coffee beforehand, and I always like to get to know folks. Uh, you know, you and I have known each other, I guess, for a couple of years now, found out we had a mutual connection. Um, but then I didn't really know your full story of baseball. You said you got to play in Germany, right, as like a player-coach uh, sort of deal? Yeah, it was it was funny because it was 2008, and I realized I wasn't going to make millions of dollars playing Major League Baseball, and I got a random call from uh, a guy in Germany saying, hey, we need an American to come play on our men's team and, and help sort of be the assistant coach for the men and then be the head coach for the for the youth team and I didn't know what to make of it because I didn't know the Germans played much baseball. How did they find out about you? Like where did they discover you or get uh, your was, connection? I don't even recall. I, th- I had a buddy whose friend did it and I think I got connected through one of my minor league buddies but I, I don't remember actually how they got a hold of me um, but it ended up working out great. They you know they put me up. I, I got paid. It was like a job. I got paid. Uh, and got to experience that culture. I'd never been to Europe before, so it was a it was a good time. And what uh, city? I was in a little town called Doren, Germany, okay. which is in the northern part of Germany. It's right in between Hamburg and Bremen. Okay. Um, really fun little town and and fun culture. Did yeah. you pick up German at all, or uh, like here and there a little bit, or is everybody speaking Nine. English? Nine. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> it's it's hard because you go over there and they all speak three or four languages, so they'll just speak English to you. And so I was only there for about three months and I didn't, okay. I didn't pick up much German at all. No. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm uh, from a language perspective and from a music perspective, I'm, that's not my strong suit. Yeah. Let's just say that. Well, you said you were telling me a little bit before, and I don't know if we'll keep that uh, line of uh, conversation or we'll cut off the, the intro to the podcast, but your father uh, is from Pakistan, right? And moved to the States um, in the seventies. So you have the Pakistani heritage and even said you played on the Pakistani national team for baseball. Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States. And it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. Yeah, and that was recent. And that was kind of a another wild story where I got a random phone call. So this this guy calls me out of the blue and says, I'm a scout for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, and he said, I, I understand you played some pro ball over here and that you're you have a Pakistani background. And I said, yeah who is this? And he said, well, do you want to play for the Pakistani national team? (laughs) I I probably cussed at him and told him to, you know, F off because I thought it was one of my buddies pranking on me or something because I haven't played competitive baseball in 15 years. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 Omar, we, you know, I'm helping the Pakistani Federation find some players with experience because they're going to play in the World Baseball Classic qualifier down in Panama City. And I said, are you telling me just over the phone that you're going to put me on the national team if I agree to, like, get my body and my arm in shape? And he's like, can you? <laughs> said, How can I not now? Yeah. 
And so it, it was really cool. I got to represent my father's home country. I had a cousin um, who who played college ball here as well that was on the team. And so it was a really cool experience to play with him because he's eight years younger than me. We never played together before. And uh, a lot of our family got to come down and watch the tournament. So how long did it take you to get in shape for that, out of curiosity? I had about six weeks to get it going. And did you feel yeah. like you got yourself back? Probably not close to what you were in your 20s, but you feel like serviceable? S- serviceable. We'll say, we'll say serviceable. <laughs> That's, um, I use that word because I'm 40 now. If I tried to train six weeks to play soccer, I would be serviceable. Like I, I can move a little bit, but I'm probably way slower. My hips don't quite do what they used to do. Yeah. But um, I can trap a ball, you know. It, yeah, so I I, uh, I pitched in a game. I came out of the bullpen against the Argentine. Argentine national team, which thankfully they're they're better at soccer than than they are at baseball. <laughs> so I got our starter out of a jam, and then I went back out and walked a couple guys and ended up giving up a couple runs. So my my stat sheet wasn't great, but I feel like it was a, a decent. Dude, outing. what a cool what a cool thing though, like to to get to say you did right, especially the way it transpired as well. Yeah, it was it was. So how did you all do in the tournament? Just last question around that. Um, we we so we lost both games we played, but but Pakistan is an evolving baseball country. There, it's a cricket dominant country. They're yeah. top three in the world in cricket, and so to go over there and, and be competitive, like we lost to Argentina seven to five, which is a com- yeah. fairly competitive game. Um, we lost to Nicaragua twelve to nothing. But the difference is, on their 30-man roster, they had 21 professional baseball players. Right. On our 30-man roster, we had zero professional right. baseball players. Right. And so it was. we did okay. And, and for reference, in the prior qualifier, the Pakistani team didn't score a run in either game. So mm. the fact that we were close... Uh, in a game is 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 progress. That's cool, man. Yeah. It's super cool. And I appreciate you sharing that story. I didn't even realize that until we sat down uh, having coffee yeah. this morning. But obviously, there was a point. Um, even though this came later in life, there was a point after the German stint where you realized baseball wasn't in your future. I think uh, you know we've all had to come to that realization at some point or another. So, what did you start doing for work uh, right out after that? Yeah, I came back to Dallas in August of two thousand and eight, and most people our age or older realize what was going on in 2008. You know, the, the financial markets had melted down, real estate was in the tank and, and there wasn't a whole lot of good mm-hmm. options for jobs, even in a great market like, like Dallas Fort Worth. Um, so I got connected to an insurance company through my college roommate, okay. uh, a gentleman named Bill Brooks interviewed me. I don't think he hired me on the spot, but, but it was pretty clear. He, he wanted me to come work for him. So I went to work for Assurance Health selling um, small group, fully insured uh, on the on the John Alden paper that a lot of brokers still remember today. Um, and it was a great learning experience because we were competing against the behemoth that is Blue Cross mm-hmm. and, and trying to convince brokers to sell our, our paper that they were less familiar with. So we had to get real creative with selling HSAs in the early days and HRAs. And um, so, I, you know, I cut my teeth doing that and learning on the fly. It was like, here's the phone, kid start making friends. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I realized pretty quickly that, that sales was going to be a good path I was for say, me. You, you said it wasn't necessarily the insurance component got you hooked, but it was the fact that you got the opportunity to sell that you really, really liked. So I think even probably that was a good thing that you were in a position selling something a little more challenging, right? That you had to develop because some of the more of the soft skills and understand how to overcome objections or, you know, if you're going up against a behemoth, right, you got to be a little bit better, a little bit better salesman, a little smarter to be able to sell against uh, a name like Blue Cross. So do you feel like that shaped your, your career? That was a good place to, to start? W- without question. Um, I, I still still talk about it today with friends and, and colleagues that I knew from back then. Um, and, and anytime I'm talking to 
people and they ask me what I do and I say I'm in the insurance business, they they immediately think, oh my God, that's so boring. Mm -hmm. But man, like it's a people business. Mm -hmm. Selling is selling and it's it's all about relationships and, and building your expertise as you go. And so, yes, selling against the Bohemus is what I figured out I like doing because I have a, a contrarian nature. And, and so being able to sort of craft a message in a way that is going to help your brokers or your prospects um, see your side of things yeah. is, is really fun for me. But I think it's cool too, when you understand that your product solves a problem, right? Like you understand it's different than the sort of status quo type product. You said you're contrarian. That's a uh, word that they use a lot at, at Pareto. And I think even one of our captives uh, was called or is called contrarian. I'm new, nice. uh, forgive me. Uh, I don't know everything about the organization yet, but I like that mentality because to me, contrarian or counterculture or anything that goes against the status quo suggests there's an identification that status quo is not solving a particular problem or there's a void, there's a need there. There. And so that contrarian mentality is you're going to go try to solve that problem instead. And I think that's fun. I think that's where you find where those opportunities uh, arrive. So was it so much that you, your contrarian personality found this product or your contrarian product or your contrarian personality was able to come out because you were selling that type of product? Yeah, um, maybe a little bit of both. Um, I, that's a great question. I, I think it's probably both. Okay. Um, but this this portion of the industry, this alternative self-funding world um, can get in your blood and it's certainly gotten in mine. I, oh, I yeah. absolutely love what I do. I love disrupting the status quo. I love competing against um, the, the bukas of the world and I love disrupting the system that I think um, doesn't serve the working class. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't. I mean, people talk all the time about how healthcare is broken. I don't think it's necessarily broken. I think, um, you know, the free market dictates what people will, will tolerate. And so it's, it's, it's only broken if, if we broke it. So mm. it's, it's our job to sort of um, correct it where we can. And so that's what we aim to do for the employers and, and the employees that um, yeah, I would say no, I don't even know if it's broken. I think it's just working as advertised, but the, or right. as designed, not necessarily advertised, but as designed. And so, the 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 crux of it is: is do you like the way it's designed or not? And I would I would argue that I dislike the way it's been designed. And so, you and I both kind of bet our career and bet our our uh, futures on attacking that, or at least working against that. Whether or not we win, who knows? But I think with a clear conscience, what I do on a daily basis, I'm happy about the role that I play. I, I would agree. And, and yeah, I like what you said. It's designed, it's, it's working the way it was designed, it intended to, to, well, to work. And, um, you know, thankfully we live in a, in a free country with a free market and it's up to the free market to decide to do it a better way. Right. I mean, if we think the government's going to bail us out, we're sadly mistaken. I, you know, without being political, I'll, I'll say that, you know, Obamacare maybe had some um, really good intentions, but without a doubt, I don't think anybody could argue that Obamacare has led to cost increases, um, which that is the opposite of what it was intended right, to do. Right. So, you know, anybody thinks that local, state, or federal government's going to come save the day as it relates to healthcare is just um, that's just wishful thinking. Well, and I do think there's usually surface level good intentions that you, you perceive, oh, I can see why they did this. So that makes sense. But what always happens is the unintended consequences when the thing fully plays out, it usually has the inverse impact when, again, when regulation and government gets involved, I'm with you too. I think private sector, it's our responsibility, whether we're 
Um, efficient at it or not, it's our responsibility to try to go fix these things or correct the things around those regulations. So when, so when did you enter the world in, of RBP, though? Let, let's kind of move forward and then we'll start that conversation. So reference-based pricing, when did you f discover this thing? Um, so I first heard about it in early 2019 when I was um, called by a recruiter who was um, looking for, for sales talent to go work for ELAP, which is now Imagine 360. So I uh, I went to work for ELAP in, in May of 2019. Did you know what it was at that time when that recruiter called you? I did not. You didn't? Okay. I did not. Um, so what sold you at least on the concept, uh, at least in 2019? It, it sounded interesting. I called a few brokers that I had close relationships with and sort of pre-vetted it out as best I could. And um, I like the sound of it. It's it's a contrarian way of doing things. It's it generates a ton of value and savings for the employers that they that they serve. And um, I went ahead and made the jump and things were going really well there. I realized that it was a product that I liked uh, in an industry that I liked. And I got off to a really great start with with those guys. And about a year into it, um, ClaimDot came knocking on my door and, and they presented me with just, you know, a, a life-changing opportunity that I couldn't pass sure. up. And so uh, after 14 months, I made the jump from, from ELAP to ClaimDoc, and that was August of 2020. So coming, oh, coming yeah. up on three years. Okay, yeah, so you were selling reference-based pricing solutions too in the middle of the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll, we'll unpack a little bit of whether that was a good or a bad thing for your business. But before we proceed down the path, I think because I don't cover this a lot, and I think I don't think it's a niche solution, but it's not something that everybody in our ecosystem understands. So before we proceed, why don't we kind of define what we mean by reference-based pricing? And I know you said that's a component of what you do, so add on to what the rest of, of what ClaimDoc does as well. But let's start with just the definition of what we mean when we say RBP. Yeah, reference-based pricing, it's um, establishing a benchmark for paying claims. Uh, and that's another question I get asked a lot, and I probably answer it 10 different ways every time. But um, reference-based pricing is a a fair and reasonable way to pay providers. Okay. Uh, it's a pricing mechanism. It's Think of it as instead of taking a certain price, you're dictating a certain price in order to make that price more fair and reasonable uh, and, and generate quality financial outcomes for yourself as an employer and also for, for your employees. Um, well, and explain the what component. the reference is, because that reference means it's referencing something, which is um, the, the reference is Medicare. Usually, um, if there's no Medicare equivalent, then we'll use AMA guidelines. Mm -hmm. We'll also use cost because every hospital that accepts Medicare has to report their cost of services to CMS. So we look at Medicare, we look at costs, we look at AMA guidelines for any claims that don't have a Medicare equivalent. So it's it's all of those things. And and one of the things that most people don't realize is that reference-based pricing is there's components of it in every single group health plan in the country regardless of who the carrier is. Okay. Um all the big carriers use reference-based pricing for their out-of-network claims. Um all the big carriers pay physicians on Medicare plus a markup. So reference-based pricing is, is everywhere. So really what we're talking about doing is reference-based pricing across the entire plan. So we call it, we don't even call it reference-based pricing what internally. Call we call it network replacement. Network replacement. Yes, okay. sir. Yeah. The network replacement, is that the full terminology? Is there an acronym? Because I know we love acronyms. In this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's probably one coming, yeah. but for now, we just we just call ourselves a, a yeah. network replacement When well, I've heard value-based pricing or VBP before, I mean, again, it's just sort of slightly shaping or reshaping the, the idea, but I think the concept 
the crux of what it is is still the same, which is using that reference point and then adding in a margin or a spread, if you will, if we're going to get in the PBM world and say, this is what we'll pay you instead. In theory, the idea, though, is that what we'll pay you instead is far less of what is a negotiated uh, paid amount with a PPO contract or equivalent like that, right? Is my understanding correct? That That is correct. Um, it's 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 bottom up so it's it's bottom plus a markup versus top down because everybody who's in this space any benefits professional knows that the top down approach leads to inflated reimbursement rates mm -hmm. and and now it's to the point where those those reimbursement rates at the hospital level are greater than three times medicare across the country not only that but the creative billing practices of the health systems um create you know even even greater costs for for the employers and and the employees. I like how you use the word creative. I feel like that's a diplomatic way to say they're overcharging <laughs> for claims. I'm being a little bit PC because I know this is going to be. I understand. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you got to toe the line. I totally get that, man. <laughs> but so why don't we? Uh, let me ask you this, and then I want to start going into some more technical uh, details because I want folks to really understand what this solves. Um, but the claim doc solution in and of itself, like, what is the what is the difference point? What do, what do you guys feel you do better? Like, tell me about your solution in reference. You know, in benchmark against. Other, other vendors, but what you do well and why you guys think you have the best solution. Yeah, um, there's there's a few there's a few things there, and I could I could talk on that topic for a while. Yeah, that's so fine. I'll, you know, don't don't feel like you have to avoid you know getting the specifics if you want. Sure, I, I think the the biggest differentiator that we have is that we're a family owned boutique company. Um, that is not the norm in in my space with regard to competition. Um, it's mostly private equity or venture capital backed firm. There's a couple firms that are part of a publicly traded entity. And, and that's all well and good. Um, I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, but when you're, when you're dealing with a service that has such a high intensity of, of labor, meaning yeah. you have to have a really beefed up service model to make it work, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work well if you have a stripped down service model or you're running a skeleton crew because you have to deliver returns to your outside investors. Um, you know, I, I work for our founder who's still our CEO and he's, you know, I call him I call him a redneck because he is one. <laughs> he's a redneck that drives a used Ford pickup truck and he's not that fancy and we can operate on a little bit thinner margins in order to make sure that our customers are taken care of. And 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 that shows. That shows really quickly when um, people have done RBP with some of our competitors and then they do it with us. Uh, and just to give you an example, like we have about 120 employees and just about half of those people are member facing. They're there okay. to um, ensure that members have access to care outside of a traditional contract and then they're also there to handle any sort of billing questions that pop up well and that's always been issues. the rub right or at least the early versions of reference-based pricing is that there was concerns over balance billing right it was a very obviously the most common objection or concern but you know there was sort of this unknown um, it's because, well, I don't have a network, so what happens and how does how do I navigate this? So talk to me about maybe some of the early iterations of this versus how it's evolved. Or you said, I think it started in 2007 uh, was the origination of to, RBP? To my knowledge, yeah. yeah. Um, um, GPA, Group and Pension here in town and, and ELAP sold uh, Bill Miller Barbecue down in San Antonio. That was That's the first full RBP case that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, and that was 2007. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's still, I mean, still relatively new ish solution in the grand scheme of things. So. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was 2007. So we're talking 16 years now. So, um, there's been a lot of, obviously a lot of 
trials and tribulations throughout that 16 years. But there's um, firms that have gotten smarter. I think, you know, we're one of them. We're, we've gotten smarter about how we transition people from PPO to reference-based pricing. And there's a number of things we do there as well. Um, we've got a program that we call Pave the Way. Okay. Um, which we actually trademarked. But Pave the Way is just a series of proactive outreaches that we do to the providers that the group already sees. So we do that two ways. One, we'll take a top utilization report and we'll start reaching out to the providers. And then two, we give the members the opportunity during open enrollment and then ongoing forever, we'll give them the opportunity to tell us who their providers are that they want to see. Yeah. And we'll do the outreach. And, and it's it's a really friendly conversation when I say, hey, Dr. Jones, um, Spencer's coming off of United and he's coming on to our open access program. Here's how we're going to pay you. Here's how quickly we're going to pay you. Will you file claims? Here's the payer ID. Here's what the card looks like. Um, it's, it's a really smooth transition. And if you think about what that does for us, it gets all the high utilizers who are already a little bit uncomfortable with the change mm -hmm. because they see three, four, five, six, ten doctors. It gets them comfortable with making sure with, with their access to care. So we, we set them up with all their docs. And then they also know that they've got a dedicated member advocate in their back pocket that they can use for any sort of questions that pop up. Well, and that's, that's one of the things I liked about, I sat down with uh, Patrick uh, a long time yeah. ago. Um, and it's one of the things I liked about the story he was telling is that the the old way, I guess, if you will, was you pay them and tell them take it or leave it, and then be willing to fight that in court with a balance bill, right? Or be a little bit more adversarial in nature. Um, and it's fine; it was a way to go about it. But then it left, uh, you know, sort of a lot more of a gray area and unknown for the member. <clears throat> you guys seem to take a softer approach, a more proactive approach, to ensure that those providers are already on board prior to ever seeing a claim filed that way, right? ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people, and it's become a real simple transition. We thought it was going to be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. Yeah, so there's there's really two ways to do our well, there's there's two primary ways to do RBP. One is is pay and defend. You pay the claim, you think it's fair and reasonable, and then you defend that claim. And and the other way is to negotiate and settle. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the old model of ELAP was pay and defend. They've come up with a softer approach. Um, some of the other competitors, they were negotiate and settle, which you know, it can be better for the member in certain scenarios, but it, it sets a bad precedent and it yeah. also dilutes plan assets. Yeah, yeah. And so we find that we have a balance of both. We, we do all the legal work in-house. We have provider relations in-house. We have member services in-house. Like we do everything under one roof. And so we have the, the ability to pay and defend. We have the ability to negotiate and settle. We have the ability to cut a single case agreement or a direct contract. And so we think our, our version of network replacement is the most buttoned up in the industry. And uh, I would, you know, I would put our product up against anybody. Well, that's, I was talking to a broker just to kind of give you a, a kind of an analogy there, because there are, there's a, a give and take on both directions, right? You can be completely adversarial and get the lowest price, or you can be kind of a pushover and still be reference-based pricing, but not really 
provide the savings that, that ultimately you're looking for. And sure. I was having a conversation with a local broker, um, you know, small, smaller agency that was maybe thinking about making a change to a bigger agency. And we were having this conversation about would he be able to do everything that he hopes to do or does today in his niche if he had the type of scale or would there potentially be some compromise that me needed to be made, but do it at a much bigger level for a lot more people. And I think you have to look at both sides of that equation. Yep. One's not necessarily better or worse. Do you want the most impact, even though it's slightly diluted, or do you want maximum impact for a small number of people? What's better? I mean, that's up to the individual to decide. We, we play that game all day, every day, and we, we play that, and, and it's, a, it, it's in a collaborative way because we're looping in the consultant, we're looping in the plant sponsor and saying, hey, you know, um, this example popped up last week, this lady needed a some sort of female surgery. I don't know all the details, but it needed to be done. We didn't want to have care delayed. Mm -hmm. um, the facility was giving us a not so great single case agreement rate, um, and and we found it to be just outside of plan guidelines where we normally would say no, let's not do this. But because it was a sensitive female issue, um, the plan sponsor said, yeah, let's just let's just go ahead and pay that claim mm -hmm. and get this thing done. And so we we try to be. Um, really thoughtful about how we do that because we are dealing with people's health care. Yeah, you it's still have to be life. conscientious of the member themselves, right? right? Like never can be lost in any of these equations. Yeah, and, and I think the X factor for, for our plans when it comes to financial savings is the fact that we have a clinical team on staff, nurses that and, and coding experts that perform a clinical audit on every single bill before we start to reprice the claim. And so when you when you look at how we, we talked about it earlier, the creative billing practices of, of these large health systems, um, they know that the big payers are auto adjudicating claims, even really, really large claims. And so just the fact that we audit it, I mean, my CEO will tell you that we're going to scrape off 25 to 30 percent of the dollars of any inpatient stay before we reprice the claim. Wow. Before. Before we okay. reprice the claim, um, because there's so much fraud, waste, abuse, whatever you want to call it, there's so much of that in the bill that we're just able to catch. That's crazy, yeah. Well, let's talk about that, kind of the way that you adjudicate and the way that you get paid, because there's, I think there's a couple different ways that you can go about it. Um, again, some give and take in the way that you go about it, but you guys don't really deploy the, the PEPM model, right? That's not a fixed cost. You guys do, what, a, per, a percentage of savings instead? We So we take a percentage of the build charge, okay. um, which is sort of faux pas. There's only a couple of vendors still doing that. Um, why is it faux pas? Because they feel like people are making too much money. Yeah, correct. Doing, okay. Correct. Okay. Uh, and and the other the other competitors who don't do that have done a good job of saying these guys are making too much money, and so some brokers will tend to believe that. I, I think it's the only way to go um, because it's more indicative of the work that you're doing. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll just give you a fake example. You you bring me a 200 life case and nobody goes to the hospital for six months. Do you want to pay $30 PEPM to a vendor or do you want to pay nothing to me because I haven't done anything yet? Mm -hmm. Right. That's the difference. And but the know, balance of that equation, right, is that like caps or, you know, making sure that there's not right. an unlimited upside of, of savings that you guys can make on any given claim. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. We, we cap ourselves out per claim so that we're not being egregious. And so and, and that's also more friendly for our stop loss markets because on these really big claims, they don't, you know, they don't want to pay me $200,000 on one claim. That's not really fair. So we cap ourselves on big claims. Yeah. But the, the stop loss carriers that have taken the time to learn our model and have a couple of years or more experience with us, they'll give claim doc decrements compared to some of the other vendors out there because they know 
how tight our claims management process is. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it from that perspective, my fees really don't matter because you want to take the PEPM vendor, which adds to the employer fixed cost when my stop loss rates are even less because the carrier knows that my claims management process is so buttoned up. You lose the higher fixed cost, you get the lower stop loss rate. And, and it's not that my fees are hidden or that we're trying to be you know elusive about it. We're very transparent about the way we get paid. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just it's just a overall the financial outcome to the client is better. So I don't see why it's such a sticking no, point. No, and I don't think it is even a sticking point. I just think there are some solutions out there that don't place those caps on on what they get paid on a per claim basis. And that's where you start looking at, well, wait, you made more money than anybody else in the equation. That doesn't seem appropriate, right? And so that's the balance, again, that you have to find what is the right way to massage it so that everybody looks at the equation and goes, that was appropriate, that was appropriate, and that was appropriate, and we all win. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, so that's another, that's another thing is like, there's scenarios where our fee is higher, is higher than the provider gets paid on a certain claim. And that doesn't sit right with a lot of people, but the only way that happens is if we catch all the fraud that was in the bill in the first place. Yeah, yeah And yeah. so it's like, well, our, our audit uncovered these things. And if we didn't do the audit, you would have paid X. Yeah. And so. Yeah. The, the inverse is do nothing and then just pay what, was billed or pay pay what the contract allowed, which is obviously a significantly higher multiple than what you what you did pay. Um, so again, I mean, I, I think those are things just you, you hear in passing, right? Oh yeah, but X. And I think usually whenever there's any sort of soft objecting like that, it's probably the result of somebody else marketing against you or just an, a marketplace not being fully educated on it. And then it's very easy to address. And so I usually like to give folks an opportunity just to simply address those things head on because yeah. what typically happens is you go, ah, Okay, that makes sense. Well, yeah. we're, we're about to really put an end to that conversation when we release our 2022 numbers. We're truing up and maturing out the claims, and we're doing a lot of analysis on our, not the discount numbers. We don't want to play the discount game, but the true cost, the cost per member per year or the cost per employee per year, the cost per family per year. Um, and when we when we put those numbers out to the market, the, f the fee conversation is going to go away because people are going to see, wow, that's... Well, sometimes it just simply takes a matter of a few years of building up the data to put out that white paper then to prove in retrospect how, how well it worked. You know it does. Now the market gets to actually see that put out publicly. Yeah, right? I yeah. mean, we, we have generally said for the last couple of years that depending on where you are geographically and how your plan is structured, we're going to save you 25 to 35% on your overall spend. And our, our 2022 numbers are looking like they're going to be far greater than 35%, like high 30s, maybe low 40s on average um, when we compare them to the Kaiser Family Foundation's numbers that were recently published. That's pretty astonishing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's crazy. Well, you said geographically, and I, I want to ask you, because we're located in, in, in North Texas, the Dallas area, for those that are listening that aren't aware. Um, but I realize there are certain geographies, right, that a reference-based pricing arrangement or an open network arrangement just simply hasn't caught on or doesn't work because there's so much provider pushback or there's maybe some monopolies or duopolies of systems in those locations. So what happens in a geographic area when you just can't do it? And maybe tell me why that, that's the case. Um, there are a couple really tricky markets. Um, I won't call any of them out publicly, but anywhere where there's a dominant system that has the majority of the hospitals and probably also some of the providers is, is typically going to be tough. So you, you think about that and it's a lot of rural markets and then even some big markets where um, there's just one behemoth system that is like no, we're not, we're not going to allow anybody in. And, and we, we have clients in, in some of those regions. And what we do there is we go out and we try to 
um, contract with as many freestanding ambulatory surgical centers as we can so that people have access to care. And then the emergency room is, is fine um, because of the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the ERs and anything attached to that can't balance bill the member okay. and they can't turn care away. And so um, there's there's some workarounds. Our, our provider relations team calls it a, a plan B, but um, there's certainly areas that are more challenging than others. I think a lot of that is is broker perception more than anything okay. else. Like, okay. you know, in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, it's there's, there's not a ton of brokers that are bought into the RVP concept. And that's might've been from some heartburn that happened 10 years ago. Um, so it's, it's not easy. I'll, I'll never say it's easy. There's always going to be challenges, but w- from our viewpoint, the, the type of savings that are generated and the type of member experience we can deliver for 95% of the group is worth the, the headaches and the noise that we're going to hear on. on yeah, I mean, especially at that, you know, that, that 35 ish percent number actually bears itself out like broadly yeah. or maybe higher, right? Like you go, well, for 40% plan savings, I think I could deal with just a little bit of noise and a little education. And I do, do think it comes down to making sure the member is aware uh, because some uh, employers will self-fund and their membership has no idea, right? Because there's nothing that really they interface with that is different than being fully insured. Right. I think it does a disservice to the members as well as the employer to not be a little bit more forthcoming about that because that lets them know, hey, I actually am an active participant in the outcome of this plan. Money, you know, the cost of my plan is going to go up or down based on some of my own behavior in the way that I, I use the system. So I think with RVP, you, you kind of have to be open and upfront, right? In the way that you educate members. Yeah, we, we would, we would never even allow a, a broker to sell our program without getting buy-in from, from the plan to, to do that type of education because it, it would, I mean. Well, you touched on it part, earlier. Yeah. I'd love to talk about, let's say I'm a group um, I don't know if you can use a fully insured to all the way to RBP example or a self-funded with a PPO to RBP. I don't care. But talk to me about what it's like to sort of flip that switch and prepare the population now to, to, to interface with the healthcare system that way. Yeah, it's, a, it's an all hands on deck approach. I mean, we have an internal marketing team that builds out custom employer communication. Um, our dedicated implementation team is, is there, you know, two to three months prior to the effective date because we want to have a part in open enrollment and the communication that goes out to the members. Um, so, and, and it's, you know, I say all hands on deck because some people still enroll on paper. Some people enroll on their payroll system. Some mm-hmm. people have a standalone Ben admin. And so, you know, everything under the sun, whether it's virtual group meetings or in-person group meetings, or there's an enrollment firm involved and we need to educate the counselors, or we need to plug videos into the Ben admin or flyers into the payroll stuffers or it just like a you, regular line of communication needs to be open right in a recurring line of communication correct yeah how far in advance 60 90 days in advance or or what we've had some large um employers that have said we're going to make the move six months ahead of time and we'll start the pre pre-open enrollment communication six months ahead of time okay and, and it doesn't stop at open enrollment it's it's perpetual it's not a set it and forget it plan and i think that's where the problems arise is you know, a, a, a broker that's never done it before and they're used to just doing, even if they're self-funding with a network, it's it's pretty streamlined and um, they have to understand that this requires active plan management to, to make it go well. Yeah. So. Well, that's it. I mean, I, there's no 
such thing as a free lunch, right? You can't just flip a switch and save 40% on your, your plan without some effort or, you know, breaking a few eggs, if you will, to, to, to make the, that omelet. But I want to talk about the actual, let's drill down to the actual kind of member level where I need a procedure. Um, so let's, let's pick a procedure that has, is scheduled, um, like a knee operation or something very you know, relatively routine. How do I go about navigating the system so that I know that my claim will be paid and I'll, I'll be happy as an employee? This podcast is sponsored by PlanSight. PlanSight is a technology for employee benefits brokers to more efficiently manage their RFP process for any group size, all funding types, and over 20 benefit lines and point solutions. PlanSight is the only end-to-end RFP technology on the market today. Let's modernize your RFP process together. Check us out at PlanSight.com. Yeah, so um, Spencer needs his meniscus redone. Um, and he's already seen his primary care doc who's referred him into an orthopedic surgeon. The orthopedic surgeon's done the MRI and has determined you need surgery. That orthopedic surgeon's office knows that that surgery requires prior authorization. Um, and so they call the, the pre-cert company that's on the ID card. It's the same one that would be attached to any of your PPO plans. And they just verify medical necessity, verify eligibility, benefits, um, and, and your surgery scheduled and on you go. If the patient intake people at the facility have any questions about reimbursement or they say, hey, this is an out of network claim, we need an agreement. ClaimDoc has a provider relations team on standby. So on standby, the way you would think of a TPA being on standby to take provider calls, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we have a provider relations team on standby to negotiate single case agreements when those type of things pop up. And so we would get on the phone with hospital administration and say, this is, this is an open access plan with no network. Here's how we typically pay. Does this work? If it doesn't work, let's negotiate a a fair and reasonable agreement so that Spencer can get his knee surgery without any delays. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the time that's a fairly smooth process when it's, when it's not, it's not. And, and now it's, again, it's all, I keep saying all hands on deck. It's all hands on deck to make sure that if we do have to reroute you to another facility, we'll, we'll go as far as calling your doc and saying, hey, doc, um, XYZ hospitals not being very agreeable to this procedure. Do you have admitting rights at another place? Can we get them in there? And, and that's how we go about doing that. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, so let's talk about the provider side of the equation, right? Because what's, what is, in your mind, what is the benefit to a provider from saying yes to a claim doc in the way that you pay? Like, I'm sure there's multiple benefits that you could point to. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a simpler process. It's a faster payment. Oftentimes, it's, it's a higher payment if we're talking about physicians. Um, and, and we talked about this at Coffee earlier, but the primary care providers have been getting squeezed. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, and and most people don't realize that the the docs are getting Medicare plus a markup, whether they're getting paid by Blue Cross mm-hmm. or United or Cigna or Aetna. And we pay docs Medicare plus a 25% markup. The networks are paying them less and less and less to the point where I believe the Dallas area is like 103%. 103% of Medicare? If you look at a blended commercial payer average. Wow. So that, that actually begs my question, which I've had before, which is, is Medicare too, price too low and the private sector is having to actually supplement Medicare because it's not enough uh, payment, right? Do you think that's happening or do you actually think it's a fair uh, reimbursement rate? Um, broadly, right? It's an, on average. Very, right? yeah, yeah, broadly. Yeah. Bro- I think that's the argument that the large health systems would try to make is that they're losing on Medicare. Um, my argument back would be that 
um, maybe they need to tighten their belt if if they can't make money on Medicare. And I and I get that it's it's claim by claim, but but I'll give you an example. Like um, we rarely see any pushback on dialysis claims. Okay. Because dialysis, the overwhelming majority of their care is for seniors that are Medicare participants. Mm-hmm. And so they make really healthy profits off of a flat Medicare rate. And so, you know, I, I get that maybe a rural hospital could say that because they're, they're maybe they're losing population and they're struggling financially. But if you're a big system in a big market, um, you're going to have a really tough time selling me on the fact that you can't at least break even off Medicare. And I would I would need to see, a, you know, the salaries of all your executives <laughs> before you tell me that Medicare is not a break-even because, you know, any nonprofit hospital who's got a bunch of executives making seven figures, okay, well, maybe maybe that's why Medicare is not enough for you. Yeah. But, you know, and I'll give you another example. I, I own a home health agency, and um, our break-even point on, on Medicare managed care is like 70% of Medicare. So, you know, it, it's really funny that the networks are really good at managing costs for the government because they're incentivized to, and they're really bad at managing costs for commercial plans because they're not incentivized right, to. Right, it's, right. it's a really easy math equation Well, again, to see. it speaks back to, and I've heard that 30 to 40% delta, uh, you know, the folks that came on and talked about the Consolidated Appropriations Act and compliance uh, last year suggested there might be a 30 to 40%. Uh, margin built into the system that was unnecessary, right? That that's really where we can attack. So it's no surprise to me that that's kind of a similar range that you're seeing. I mean, I've seen, you know, forensic audits and things like that where they're finding 20 plus percentage just in looking at the bills and adjudicating them after the fact. So I would suspect that we've got that amount of margin built into our system that is is um, unnecessary in the grand scheme of things. So could Medicare then be a, the appropriate reference point? It probably actually is, uh, if I had to had to guess. Yeah. I, I read an article on LinkedIn just the other day that, that talked about, it was a, a broker talking about how he's um, transitioned one of his reference-based pricing clients to a flat Medicare. Um, that's a little scary from, from just in my opinion, from my perspective, because um, I don't know what the differential and pushback would be. We pay facilities Medicare plus 25 or cost plus 20, whichever is greater mm-hmm. line by line. And so we know that that that's a fair payment. We're never paying less than than cost plus twenty or Medicare plus twenty five. So we can defend that as fair and reasonable. Um, a flat Medicare rate, you know, as aggressive a person as I am, that would even that would scare me. <laughs> that's even a little yeah. scary for you. Well, what about kind of let's kind of zoom out. We went down to the case level. Let's look like big picture stuff though. Do you have a sense or do you have any insight of like how common is a reference-based pricing or an open network arrangement across the board, uh, across the country? Is it still relatively a niche thing today? I don't know the number. Okay. I, I, if, you know, I know for a fact it's less than 5% of even self-funded plans. Okay, really? Okay. It's small. Um, so what, what do you think is holding back getting this to sort of critical mass to be a lot more common? Um, I think a lot of it is is held at the consultant level. Um, we don't do much business with the, the big consultants out there. We do a lot of business with the small independents and, and some with the, with the mid-market shops. But I, I think they've grown accustomed to the network status quo. And, and the, those guys, let's face it, like brokers, a good broker makes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so getting them to do anything different is, is a challenge and getting them to do something that's likely going to place a higher workload on them for the same amount of revenue. Um, that's a real challenge. 
even if it's the right thing to do for the client. And I know, you know, nobody would sit here and admit that they're not going to do the right thing for the client. And I would hope that they all would, but, um, well, the incentive structure, um, incentivizes them to not necessarily do this. Right. Um, unfortunately, um, so I guess we would beg the question, how do we make sure our consultants are still making a good living, that their agencies are still thriving, they're, they're still able to provide the resources for their clients to do their job as, as advertised, but then incentivize them in a way to, to really look at things that are uh, more beneficial to the employer's bottom line? Yeah, I, I think... I think from from claim docs perspective is we try to alleviate as much of that workload as possible with our member advocacy and and our account management and implementation. So we we try to be that resource they can lean on. Inevitably, they're going to have to get involved, and and it is more hands on. Um, but there's there's a lot of innovation out there that these consultants just aren't taking true advantage of that that can make RBP run a lot smoother. And I'll give you a perfect example that I love: direct primary care. Um, when you when you go to an employer and say let's let's take all these claims off the table and let's yeah. pay for them on a subscription basis and now all of this care um, for your entire population becomes free no copay to your people that's a huge value add benefit to the member yeah absolutely that they love and I've sat in open enrollment meetings and I've watched people cry over benefits like this. Um, and it's just so underutilized and underappreciated by the consultant community that um, it's it's really hard to fathom. Do you see DPC and RBP combined often, though? I mean, I think that's a pretty heavy one-two punch. It, it's it's amazing, and it's funny you say that because I just led a panel at, at the Benefits Pro Conference that was um, dedicated to DPC and, and RBP, and, and the title of the breakout session was uh, a match made in heaven question mark yeah yeah and I had um, a, a broker who's done a lot of a lot of combo DPC RBP um, speak and I had a, a physician CEO who runs a DPC practice out of Chicago participate and you know it was attended by 300 consultants probably so I, I think it's going to continue to grow and and I'm I'm pushing it hard and and I'd like to think that claim doc is out at the forefront on the RBP side with partnering with these DPC solutions because the real the real magic happens when that care needs to go outside of the four walls of the DPC mm -hmm. and the care coordination team at the physician level works hand in hand in glove with my member advocacy team to make sure that special specialty care goes to an RBP from yeah, the specialist. Yeah, I mean, it, again, if, if, you're, if you're set up and maybe you're arranged in a certain way, your population is maybe heavily concentrated in one location, which would certainly help to stand up DPC and then add RBP on top of it. But if, <clears throat> if you were one of those employers that that situation was the case, I mean, I would strongly uh, take a look at those in, in conjunction, even if you don't do them in the same year, right? You might look at it as yeah. too disruptive to do uh, in the same year, and people always use that crawl, walk, run, uh, metaphor to suggest let's do it over the course of time but man i could see that would just be a powerful cost-saving combination it smokes. yeah, um, yeah. let me tell you and and for large employers what what i've seen some of them do is is use one location as a beta site um and and then the other side to that is there's now there's now virtual dpcs there's now dpc aggregators um I, I work with a with a group down in Houston that has they built their DPC practice out of urgent care clinics. So they've okay. got 30 urgent cares in Houston, um, seven or eight more in Austin, seven or eight more in San Antonio. And so now, if you're an employer that has people in Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Beaumont, 
um, you sort of have them as your safe harbor for primary care, pediatrics, urgent care. Uh, it's a really strong offering, and it's priced well, really well, too. Well, let's, let's kind of zoom back out to big picture, and I want to ask this question. This is more speculative in nature, but do you think RBP will ever be the norm, or will it always still sort of be only a situational use that, that some uh, employers deploy? Like, could, could you ever see it being the most common way to pay claims? No. Um, okay. I think that was the government's intent with Obamacare was to get to a single payer system where there was one established payment method for everybody and the federal government didn't even come close. Okay. Um, so I, I think there'll be a system where there's a more, a more cost effective way to do it. And it'll be, it'll be a hybrid of, of RBP and what we know now today as as the ppos so well you said you guys are doing a little of that right where like people can have a dual option on in certain situations to pick which ones they prefer yeah yeah so we've we've done we've done them in the past with certain tpas and and the cigna network and we now have the ability to do it um with umr and the united network and okay. so what happens is um at open enrollment you know the member gets to choose do i want the United Healthcare plan with a $2,000 deductible for $200 a month, or do I want the claim doc plan with a $2,000 deductible for $130 a month? And um, the first one we did, you know, we, we suspected we'd get half to three quarters of the population. And what happened on our first case was six people in the group took United Healthcare mm. and 350 took claim doc. Holy cow. I mean, that really said something to us because the, the, the rank and file employees, the, you know, the, Working class America, they need. Well, I say, yeah, you, they you, need the. In bump. your example, seventy-five dollars a month savings is is a notable savings, and they might go, "Oh, this thing sounds pretty cool," and I'll I'll play ball, I'll figure it out. If I get to save seventy-five dollars a month on my premium, I mean, that's that's you shouldn't scoff at that, right? And it's not. I, we shouldn't suggest that that sort of delta wouldn't be just enough to make people choose one or the other. Well, and that's that's the other issue is that, you know, we're all a bunch of high flyers, like high-level brokers, CFOs, even HR executives, they make plenty of money. And and we maybe don't always put ourselves in the chair of of the the entry-level manufacturing guy who makes 18 bucks an hour and has a family to support. Yeah. Um and and you know, I I still do open enrollment meetings cuz I want to know what how the how the people are perceiving this and um you know seeing a, a single mother cry over her dpc benefit she didn't have to pay her copays anymore or seeing a a, a burly truck driver cry because he's going to save literally 700 dollars a month on his family coverage yeah yeah um, he, he thought i was lying to him and then started crying when he realized that that's how much money he was going to save that's real money yeah absolutely man. um and so yeah that's that's something that i would urge the entire industry to think more about is is who you're taking care of is um, is it the big health system, the big insurance company, or is it working class America? Yeah. Well, that's just it. I mean, it's, it's, once you, once you, you mentioned earlier when you kind of discovered this, you, you were sold, right? I remember when I discovered self-funding 10 years ago <laughs> was sold. I literally went back after a seminar and was still employed at my previous company and in the finance department. I'm like, have you guys heard of this self-funded stuff? It's so cool. And, and it was just like, I had, I, I had seen the light. And then I knew that if I just sort of like leaned into that and dedicated, uh, you know, my focus on that, I knew I was kind of on the right side of things, right? And so when you see the situations that you're describing, that just reinforces that, you know, you're doing solid work, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, m my priority is to, to take care of my family and, and 
be a uh, positive influence on my community and and my community is is anybody that I come into contact with and and I'm able to do that to a certain extent through through my work and so it's 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 hard but it's fulfilling for sure I love it man well Omar why don't we wrap things up I'll leave you just kind of the closing thoughts the floor is yours anything you want to say before we, we part ways? yeah it was it was truly an honor to be here um, as you know we're gonna be a long-term sponsor yeah I know for this I, thing I forgot to bring that up man no. I wanted to find a good way to segue <laughs> that in man I'll, I'll slide it in at the yeah, end okay, go for it um, yeah just the fact that you're your other two long-term sponsors are your employer and your former employer. That <laughs> yeah. told me everything I needed to know <laughs> yeah. about the the value that I was going to get out of this. So we're uh, happy to be a part of it and love the work you're doing. So yeah. thanks, man. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, we had this booked probably three or four months ago, and but things materialized since then. And I do appreciate you guys' faith uh, in what I'm doing here. I, I, I'm happy uh, to bring you into this ecosystem and make you a formal partner of the podcast. And I'm very much looking forward to what that's going to bring for both of us. Awesome. Thanks, All man. Right, man. My pleasure.